Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us in these spaces by your love, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would be given to us as we would seek to understand the very word of God. Jesus of Nazareth, we praise you for your life, death, and resurrection, for your welcome of grace available to everybody. Would we know it and feel it by faith and the power of your Holy Spirit? Even here, even now, be with us, Lord, as we would seek to grow. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Before the sermon introduction proper, just want to give you a tiny bit of orientation for the next couple of weeks of sermons here at Liberty Church Collingswood. One of the things that I read here in this passage was about human beings having dominion over animals and lots of other stuff. Just so you know, you can save the emails. I'm not going to be talking about that part here this morning. Eric Mitchell is going to be preaching this coming Sunday, and the passage right after this one is going to talk all about human beings having dominion over all things. So, Pausing that for this morning, we're going to get back to it next week. I'll be out of town this coming week. Then two weeks from now, we're actually going to come back to this passage, Genesis chapters one, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and we'll be considering the question of transgenderism as it relates to this passage here and other places in the scriptures. So now you know what's coming up over the next three weeks. I talk a lot. Ministry is more than just this aspect, but... One of my main roles is talking and communicating a lot. Sometimes I feel like I'm just a professional babbler. I just blah, blah, blah all the time, and my kids will tell me, Dad, you know what you sound like when you preach? Blah, 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 blah. So it's true. And especially when I was a younger preacher, I really spent a lot of time trying to get as many reps in as possible to do a lot of talking. So Late in college, by that point, I had felt called to go into pastoral ministry and have preaching be a large component of that. And then my first couple of years in seminary, too, I would try to get every speaking engagement I could, whether it's random churches or student fellowship groups or youth groups or retreats. I was available to come and talk to you about the Bible. And I don't do this anymore, but when I would go and travel and vacation weekend here or there, I would Google around what area we're going to and cold call, email the churches and the pastors in that area and say, hey, we've never met before. You have no idea who I am, but I'm a student at this college, student at this seminary. If you need a break, I'm going to be there if you want me to come and preach this coming Sunday at your church. And in retrospect, a shockingly high number of pastors emailed back 
and said, that would be great. I would never do that here at Liberty Collingswood. Maybe that was like a burnout meter or something. Those are the pastors that were on the verge of not being pastors anymore in that local congregation. So a lot of reps. I went through a lot of different phases. If you'd like to hear my early sermons from, for example, the church, the first church that I pastored, you can't. They were on cassette, and I have destroyed all evidence of my sermons from, from that phase of my life. But if you would go and listen to early Jim Anger sermons and messages, you'd be able to say, you know, if you know a little bit about church world, oh, Jim has been listening to a lot of this preacher when he's preaching this sermon right now, or, oh, this is his, you know, phase from this preacher over here. Also would have various ups and downs where early on in my preaching and communication ministry, whether then or looking back, I think, wow, God was really gracious. I really didn't have much of a sense of what I was doing when I was talking to other people, but felt like God really met the room. The Holy Spirit was active to, to be fruitful with my green, rookie-ish words. But then there are also some lows that I can look back on and think about. And some of the lows, things that didn't go great, they're kind of silly and it doesn't really matter. I just think, yeah, I probably shouldn't have said that. Then other times I'll look back for lows and think, yeah, that was kind of silly, probably shouldn't have said that. But then I'll think, but it was pretty funny. And nobody died. So it was fine. And may maybe I should have said that after all. I still laugh about it all of these years later. But then also there's a different category of lows where when I think back about what I said at different times, I feel a lot of regret and even occasionally shame. Here is one of those speaking engagements. So towards the end of college, I was invited to speak at a campus ministry group, a Christian fellowship group called Provision. And Provision was the student ministry for primarily African-American for black students on campus. And, you know, I wanted to speak everywhere I could, so I went there. And the phase that I was in then was a particularly bad fit for that context. I decided to spend a half hour, 45 minutes speaking from Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer number 14. What is sin? And the answer is sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. It just lilts off the tongue. Daddy, tell me a lullaby. Sing it to me. Sin is any want of conformity to lullaby. So that's what, I, I didn't actually do that part at the, uh, at, at the Provision Campus Fellowship meeting. But what I did say, and I just hammered it, was, we are all miserable sinners who deserve nothing before God except by God's grace. And I hit it really, really, really hard. And because I was such a young speaker, I wasn't reading the room at all. As I was giving that address, I was thinking, this is going great. This is awesome. This might be the best address ever given at Provision here in the history of our campus. This is awesome. But then one of the student leaders came up to me afterwards and said, Jim, thank you for coming, but I've got to be a little honest with you. He said, I, I think we feel kind of burned. We feel singed. We feel a little bit beaten up. To make matters worse in retrospect, I think I said something like, sorry, hey, didn't mean to do, to do that. But I didn't ask him why or what, what happened or what went wrong. And if I remember... I went ahead and told him something like, well, maybe you and your campus ministry need to get more serious about trusting the Bible. 
or something like that. And so to this day, and even as I repeat that story to you, I feel regret and shame. A couple years after that, I was taking a seminary class from a black professor who began to help me fill in the picture of what I think happened in those moments. And the professor said this, white pastors and preachers need to be careful when you talk about sin in contexts where the audience is prim primarily subdominant culture or minority or people of color. And he explained it, and it made sense to me. And he said, no, we don't water down the Bible. We don't change our theology. But you've got to understand that for many of the people that are in the room with you, they have been told and shown for centuries here in America that they are miserable, that they are worthless, and that they deserve nothing. And so you've got to be careful when you talk about sin that you're not talking about that, but you're talking about something different. Does that make sense? A couple years after that, pastoring in West Philadelphia, to this day the most ethnically diverse congregation that I've ever pastored. We do have some diversity here at Liberty Collingswood. I pray for more. But I was invited to preach, this was West Philly, I was invited to preach at a church in Overbrook, primarily black congregation with a black pastor, and I was happy to go, and I was friends with the pastor to, to give the person a break. This is Overbrook of Wilt Chamberlain fame, former 76er Wilt Chamberlain, much like former 76er Ben Simmons. They're both former. But anyway, I was going to Overbrook, and I'll look back on that and say, well, that was a low point when I made that Ben Simmons joke, but then I'll say, but... It was good for me, so I'll just keep going from there. But I asked that pastor, hey, and I told him my experience of preaching at Provision. And I said, help me to fill in the picture some more. Like, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to offend people. I don't want to cause damage. I don't want to be hurtful. How do I talk about sin? And this is what he said. That's a great question. And he said, when you talk about sin in my context, he's, and we come from the same theological tradition, he said, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer number 14. That's a good one. That's true. But when you talk about sin, especially in my context, and especially because you're a white pastor, make sure that whatever you say about sin is rooted in the image of God. We sin, and at the same time, we are still made, all of us, without exception, in the image of God. When you communicate about sin, make sure that you communicate as well about how incredibly valuable every human being is. And he tipped me off to a phrase that he got from a preacher for a long time in Brooklyn named Gardner Taylor. One of his phrases talking about sin in his context, black pastor, black church. Sin, and I love this phrase, is being disloyal to the royal. You get it? Sin is being disloyal to the royal. We are all made as royalty in the image of God. And when we sin, whether within ourselves or against other people, we are defacing something that's priceless, whether ourselves or other people. So yes, talk about sin as wrongdoing, but also talk about sin as tragedy. Because we are created in the image of God. In the verses that I just read, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27, this is the Genesis. And maybe you've heard, whether you're not in church a lot, maybe you've been away from the church or never in church before, you've probably heard this phrase somewhere here in the West. There's something about some tradition somewhere 
where human beings are created in the image of God. It comes from here. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. So let's spend some time thinking and considering the image of God and how we can seek in our own lives and world to be loyal to the royal. So three parts from here. We're going to talk about the image of God first, and then I want to talk about the image of God as it relates to equality. And then I also want to talk about the image of God as it relates to the unborn. I want to talk about abortion as well. So, image of God. And I've been saying for a few weeks here that the symphony of God's creation from Genesis 1 is coming and reaching its crescendo. But it hadn't yet, and now it is. This is the climax. This is the grand finale. This is where it all comes together when the crowning achievement of all of God's creation is us. Our being created in God's image. Humans and humans alone. And there are different tells, even in these couple of verses, that set off to the careful reader, this is really, really important. For example, in the space of these six days that we've been talking about, this is the last thing that God creates. Human beings. Last thing. It's not as if God goes back and says, those armadillos are funny looking. Let me take another pass at those. Or mosquitoes. Why? Hold on. Let me, let me tinker a little bit more. Instead, this is it. This is the climax. Human beings created in the image of God. This is the only place where God's language is deliberative about it. So very beginning of Genesis 1, when God created light, let there be light, God said, and there was light. But here it's not let there be, it's more deliberative. It's let us make, let us create. If you want me to talk about a little bit about what that let us means, you can email in to postsundayblues at gmail.com. And in the podcast, we can get into that. But it's deliberative, and there's a lot of barah. There's a lot of creating going on here. I said for the first sermon in this Genesis series, Bereshit barah Elohim. That's how these passages start. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And I mentioned then that word bara for create is a very special word, capital C creation. The only person that does bara-ing in all of the Hebrew scriptures is God. There are other words for little c making, fabricating, producing, creating. But the big word, bara, is only used about God. We saw it once at the very beginning. We saw it last week. Different set of contexts there are different reasons for God creating the sea monsters, the great sea creatures. But what we have here is a clustering of that bara three times, over and over and over again. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And moving through Genesis, it's only with human beings made in the image of God, with whom God dialogues, because it's only we that reflect the royal image of God Almighty. Pretty closely. One of the most little verses that are interesting at the beginning chapters of Genesis, we see towards the beginning of Genesis chapter 5, where after the fall has happened and some bad things have happened with Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve, they have another child, Seth, and this is how it's described. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. So the image of God persists through the fall. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, the same couple of words, and named him Seth. So you look at Seth. He's the likeness. He's the image of his dad. 
Look at us men and women, boys and girls. We're the likeness, we're the image of our Heavenly Father. So what does it mean to be made in the image of God? One of the perennially intriguing aspects of Genesis chapter 1 is it's really emphasized that God created human beings in the image of God, but it's not defined. What does it mean? And here's what theologians have said over the years. This is how I remember it. CR3. CR3. Not just a droid in the Star Wars Expanded Universe, but CR3. Creativity, rationality, responsibility, and righteousness. Creativity, rationality, responsibility, and righteousness. Creativity. We talked about this a couple weeks ago about Genesis and beauty. We are made beautiful and made to create beauty as human beings. Go make stuff. Make them beautiful. Make them complex. Make them striking. Whether you're left-brained or right-brained, you are uniquely exercising your gifts as being created in the image of God. Virginia Woolf, the author, said it said this way. Above all, a person is guided by an instinct to create for himself, out of whatever odds and ends he can come by, some kind of a whole, a portrait of man. So there's the creativity part but then also rationality and responsibility. We are rational beings, capable of complex logic, capable of making plans, even long-term plans that are not simply by instinct or vestigial memory, but make long-term plans. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't, but those plans are there. Rationally, we're able to say, I'm going to defer this pleasure or this desire now because there are some other greater goods that come. That's us using our rational faculties, and we're responsible. When we do wrong, there's consequences. That's also part of being created in the image of God. So a couple cross-comparisons here. It's something that's simply a thing in the academy where philosophy, biology departments, and other ones too have begun to say we are against this idea of human exceptionalism, where there's nothing special or exceptional about human beings. Why should human beings have pride of place over animals? Why should human beings have pride of place over the environment? That's an interesting set of conversations to have. We're going to talk about environmentalism later on in this sermon series this fall, too. So there's lots of different ramifications. But even though I am a little bit worried that more and more people are moving away from human exceptionalism, I'm also not super worried because I don't think we're going to get the whole way. So think of it this way. There is increasing scientific study and documentation of primates assaulting other primates, whether it's sexual assault, physical assault, murder, all these violent things. So we see that those go on in the ape and monkey world, but I think there's a pretty strong and agreed upon human intuition that it would be kind of dumb to set up a legal court system to adjudicate what these apes and monkeys are doing to one another. Next on Judge Judy, Bongo seemed to be a mild-mannered gorilla until his banana was stolen. That would be dumb. No, they're just animals. You know, we love them. They're awesome, but they're just animals. And so they're not responsible in the ways that we are. I think there would be a corresponding human intuition that would think, hey, if human beings assault one another and do horrible things, it would be dumb and wrong not to have a legal system, not for there to be consequences, because we need to be accountable to one another because we are responsible moral agents. So creativity, rationality, responsibility, and righteousness. Before the fall particularly, our first parents, Adam and Eve, our first parents were good. 
then we are still called to live righteously before God and before other people. That's why, even though life is crazy, there is this deep-set intuition that good is good. Even if we disagree sometimes about what the good is, good is good. And bad and evil is ugly. We're created in the image of God, the imago dei, with a sensus divinitatis, a sense of the divine, where there is this intuition that we are made to know and relate to and be obedient to God. That was true of the pagan ancient world. One example here, Seneca, Roman author and politician, not a person of faith in the Judeo-Christian sense, said this about the gods. The gods open the door to you. They lend a hand as you climb. God comes to men. No, he comes nearer. God comes into men and women. No mind that has not God is good. Divine seeds are scattered throughout our mortal bodies. If a good person receives them, they spring up in the likeness of their source. If you receive the seeds of God within yourself and of a parity with those from whom they came. This is actually the worldview that Paul engages on, on Mars Hill in the book of Acts. If you're familiar with that story. So Seneca says, okay, you know, we're pagans, but we all have the sense of God. Or more recently, a philosopher from Yale has studied the decline, on one hand, of people engaging in organized religion, but says people are still really religious. Carlos Ayer. As people's participation in Orthodox Christianity declines, there's always been a surge in interest in the occult and the demonic. Today we're seeing a hunger for contact with the supernatural. It's irreducible. The image of God in us is irreducible. It can't be wiped away. And as theologians have reflected once more, the creativity, the rationality, the responsibility are 100% always with us. The righteousness piece is distressed by the fall because we're not made good anymore. We're made broken. We're sinners now, and that's true. But it's interesting that the Apostle Paul in places like Colossians and Ephesians, two of his letters, talks about coming to Jesus by faith, paid the penalty for your sin on the cross, rose again, conquering sin and death and the devil. And as you access and are united to this Jesus who rose for you and gives you grace and mercy and forgiveness, you are being renovated in the image of God, specifically. So it's in Christ that the image of God in you and in me is making a comeback. It's being restored. That last piece is coming back as well. And so if you're somebody who's skeptical of spiritual realities, I think there are some things for you to think about here, whether you're here in the room or whether you're watching online. What do we do with us? Who are we? Are we an accident or an image? Are we just a set of random evolutionary and biological circumstances that have come together for a little while and are going to be scattered to the cosmic winds again? Or is there something more about us that actually is pretty special? That's the image of God barking. And for my own part, when I have friends, neighbors, family members, whom I love dearly, that take the view that we're just accidents, I have never known somebody personally that actually consistently lives that out. Yes, we're just accidents. Yes, I am against, on a piece of paper, human exceptionalism. But then on the other hand, they practice human values that we've got to do better. We need to be against injustice. Genocide is not just a survival of the fittest. Who cares? We really care and are deeply invested in it. And whether it's a human rights crisis or a natural disaster around the world, we feel like we want to do something about that. 
that's actually not consistent with us being accidents. And the couple of people in this category in this direction that really stress out about, okay, we're just accidents. I shouldn't have pride of place over the environment, over animals. And somebody actually told me once, I feel like if I need to be consistent with my own views, this was said in deep anxiety. She said, I feel like I just need to recycle myself. Why am I even taking up carbon footprint right now? And so she said, I am racked by selfishness and guilt that I'm still here. And I was able in that conversation to come back and say, it's not selfishness, it's not guilt that you should be feeling. Take comfort in the fact that you and we are made in the image of God. And don't we long for an identity and value that's stable, that can't be bullied off by social media or in-person interaction, that can't be shouted down, that changes according to your feelings because feelings fluctuate and mine do too? Receive the image of God and know your true value in the cosmos. So that's the image. Let's talk about how that relates to equality. Now, for a couple other sermons here that we've been going through in Genesis chapter 1, we cross-compare what's going on in Genesis with other ancient Near Eastern stories and cosmologies and stories and Greco-Roman stuff. You might think if you've heard some earlier sermons, oh, I bet Genesis is the only place that talks about the image of God compared to all of these other things. That's actually not true. In other myths, in other stories, in other worldviews, you do see the image of God being connected to human beings. The question, though, is who gets it? You see, without exception, in all of these other competing stories and myths in the ancient Near East and the Greco-Roman world, sure, people have the image of God, but according to the story, it's only going to be your tribe. It's only going to be your ethnicity. Or, sure, people have the image of God, but it's just the dudes. It's only the men. Women are not the image of God. Or sure, human beings are in the image of God, or rather, human being, namely the king. And that's it. And so, depending on the story, if you're not of the correct tribe, the quote-unquote correct gender, if you're not the king, you are subhuman. Because you don't have the image of God in you. Only the other. Only the quote-unquote better. And that's why Genesis 1.27 is revolutionary explicitly and emphatically. So, God created man in his own image. Adam there, humanity. Adam. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female are both Adam, are both humanity. Male and female, he created them. Revolutionary. Everybody. Both genders and all peoples. Not just the one tribe. Here in Genesis chapter 1, do you know what hasn't happened yet? Israel. The nation of Israel is coming later in the book of Genesis. And Eve is called, after the fall, the mother of all living. And so when Seth is born, and the image of God is recreated and recreated and recreated generation by generation by generation, this is even before, if you know the flow of Genesis a little bit, the Tower of Babel. And when the nations are scattered in Genesis chapter 11 in Babel, it's the image of God that goes all of these different places. So it's both genders and all peoples, which means... When we act to harm women, when we act to harm those of other ethnicities in various ways, we are being disloyal to the royal. And again, to the skeptic, how can you justify something besides only the strong survive? In nature, whether it's primates, whether it's sea creatures, it is the best, the brightest, the strongest that just pillage everybody else 
And that's how we move forward, and that's how we evolve. But because the image of God is barking again, there is an intuition in us that the powerful should use whatever resources they have for those that are less so. And am I saying that the church is clean with these things? No, and I hope that Liberty Collingswood is a place where we practice an awareness of believing the gospel more with some of these things. A couple years ago, we had a panel of women at our church talking about the reality of male predation, which is very real. We spent a whole Lenten sermon series and other ministry programming talking about racism, including in the church. These are things that we need to take seriously and grapple with. And no, the church isn't clean. So the Apostle Paul is able to say in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But then you go back and read a book that I mentioned during the Lenten sermon series, Jamar Tisby, The Color of Compromise, talks about how lynching in the Jim Crow South would not have happened if white churches in the South stood against it. But in many cases, shockingly many cases, churches were explicitly for it, and you had church leaders, elders, deacons, ministers that were leading some of these lynchings, and then others just looked away. So we're complicit. And one of the most discouraging things for me as a pastor, and even in the room or watching online, some of you loved our Lenten sermon series and said, this is great. I'm so glad that we're talking about some of these things. Others of you were like, hey, this is a little bit difficult. I'm not used to having these conversations. Thank you for those of you that were uncomfortable during those conversations and said, okay, I'm going to be open to growing and changing here for all of you. I'm grateful for that. But one of the most discouraging things for me as a pastor over my years in ministry is encountering Christians that say, when it comes to racism, I'm not talking. I'm just done. You can tell me that I'm a sinner in all of these different ways. All of these other things are on the table. Sure, I messed up here in my walk and worldview. I messed up there in my walk and worldview. But when it comes to my views on race, get off my lawn. After George Floyd was killed last year, Barna, and I mentioned this statistic earlier this year, polled white Christians and churches. Before George Floyd, 45% of white Christians said, uh, we need to talk about racial issues more, racism more. After George Floyd, it went down to about 35%. And there's not even complete agreement in the room about racial issues. I think that's fine. But to say, I don't want to talk about it, makes me want to quit. Like, is any of this real? Why am I doing this? So that's the image as it relates to equality. also want to talk about the image as it relates to unborn, uh, talk about abortion. There are a lot of complex issues here, and I want to honor the reality of complexity as I give a couple of caveats. Abortion is complex medically, really complex. Abortion is complex politically. Okay, if you have this position on abortion or that position on abortion, that doesn't make all of the policy choices and decisions that you have, where you vote, how you vote, that doesn't make it sim simple. And I'll, I'll say too, so there's news coming out of Texas over the past few weeks about abortion laws down there. When I mapped out the sermon series, it was in July, and I was planning on talking about abortion before this latest round of headlines came up, so this is not a response. But it is actually on purpose in the sense, whether it's this or other topical issues we're, we're, we're gonna wrestle with, I knew the headlines were gonna come. And I want to do my best to give you some biblical bearings as these things continue to happen. So there's complexity politically. There's complexity ethnically. 
where there are issues of racism and injustice that are woven into how we think and talk about abortion and the history. And most weighty to me of all is women's rights. W women's rights is a huge thing that needs to be taken into account when we consider questions related to abortion. And libraries can and should be written about all of those different areas that I just talked about. I'll just say this for the purposes of a single sermon. I'm not a politician and I'm not a priest. Not a politician. So I can give you some biblical bearings about where I think the scriptures land on some of these things, but it's not my job to give you political policy positions that you need to carry out. I'm also not a priest, and I don't mean to throw under the bus other church traditions in that direction, but this is one of those instances where I'm happy to be just a pastor where it's not part of my job to speak with the voice and authority of God where instead I'm just able to say, be free in your own conscience and bound by the scriptures. You see, it's not my job to say, you need to have all of my same scriptural interpretations, but it is my job, hopefully humbly, to say, that's not true, but we are bound by the same scriptures. So those are some qualifications in one direction. All else to say, too, and this is as I've heard churches talk about abortion in the past. Uh, this needs to occur in conversations like these, and I don't mean this as a conversation stopper, but starter. Uh, it needs to be and occur in the context of care. When so often I see churches, especially that are against abortion, and I also am against abortion, will talk about these issues in such a way that all of the blame and hurt and harm and anger is placed on the women, especially the young women, especially the girls, the vast majority of whom would have said, I didn't want to have an abortion, but I felt like I had no choice. So we need to be communicating compassion and care. And if you have some history with these things, we have a great counseling center. I'd, I'd be happy to set up an authorization for you to, to unpack some of these things wherever you are. There's grace and healing and restoration. I'll mention this too. It is bonkers for me to have a church that's anti-abortion and also anti-single women, and anti-single mothers specifically. Uh, that doesn't make any sense at all. Like, what's a church doing saying we are against abortion, but we also want to have nothing to do with single moms? That's a crime. We need to be for both. And churches that say, okay, anybody can be a part of our church, but if you don't have a two-parent home, we're not structured in such a way that, that you can actually jump on the train or jump on the bus because it's just not, not, not built for you. And we need to grow in that direction. And single mothers in our midst, we want you to know that you are supremely valued by us. And we need to support ministries and structures, things like Young Lives of Camden County. That's awesome. How do we do more with you that are doing a ton with Young Lives? Adoption agencies, foster care systems, these are things that we invest in and support and must. But if there's a lot of complexities that I've just mentioned in these directions, when I go to the scriptures, I see clarity. And so the seventh commandment, thou shalt not kill. And if the whole idea behind that commandment is that we need to do everything that we can to guard innocent life, how does that not apply to the unborn? I don't think it clears that far, and complexities that I've just mentioned notwithstanding, it is a lack of conformity unto and transgression of God's law. 
And I went back over the past couple of weeks, did a lot of reading about this subject. It, it had been a little while since I'd read about abortion and say, hey, I, I don't want to just, you know, lean on two hours in seminary. Let, let me go back and do some reading. Where, where are the conversations now? My basic position has, has not changed. And one of the arguments that people that are for abortion within the church would say, well, that the Bible doesn't actually explicitly talk about abortion either way because it wasn't around yet. I'll, I'll say that's true. So we need to make inferences, but at least in my opinion, the inferences are not like Grand Canyon-sized leaps. They're actually pretty small. So in a place like Exodus chapter 21, where there is legislation against a person who will assault a woman, that's a crime. But if the woman is pregnant and the baby is lost, that's a double crime for the taking not of one life, but of two. And though abortion was not around in the ancient Near East, but infanticide was, if you go into the prophetic literature later on in the scriptures, some of the most consistent and vehement prophetic critique of the nations is their practice of infanticide, where babies are recently born and then sacrificed to the gods. And I don't see a way to say, well, the scriptures are very explicitly and clearly against infanticide, but abortion would be okay. And then there's a positive side of the coin, too. The image of God exists pre-birth. More than a couple of us probably have this written somewhere at home. Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And in a more general scriptural intuition sense, if the weight of Old Testament and New Testament ethics and law is to guard and protect life and to be, for the least of these, for the truly powerless, how does that not apply here as well? And this is where we'll begin to wrap up. Uh, pl play, let's play What If Again, the MCU series on... Disney Plus right now, it's a cartoon. Don't spoil it for me. The MCU is like crushing it with product right now. I'm, I'm experiencing some fatigue, uh, but it's a good show. That's why I don't want you to spoil it for me. What if, and if in America right now, a lot of Christians are in the process of deconstructing their faith and deconverting, we can also do some deconstruction of our own. What if things that seem so easily to go together and I understand that this part of the sermon is engaging more with the progressive left, with secular progressivism from the left. Things that seem to go together, is it really that way? So a couple of examples, to me, that are actually more consistent when it comes to the abortion question than most of my friends on the progressive left. Christopher Hitchens and Peter Singer. Christopher Hitchens, a writer that I like a lot, he was emphatically not a Christian, very anti-Christian in his writing, and he talked a lot about it. A uh, secular person, but he was also anti-abortion, and he would poke those on the left and say, are we sure that this makes sense? Where if we're critiquing the right for being the party of big business and capitalism and only the strong survive and let the powerful and rich rule the world, I, I understand those are stereotypes, but this is how Hitchens talked about it. And the progressive left is for the least of these and, and, and the people that don't have voice and power being for the marginalized. Does it really make 100% sense not to be against abortion? 
or Peter Singer, philosophy professor at Princeton. I mentioned him last week in a good quote. This is where I disagree with him. He's one of those advocates for being against human exceptionalism. And he very clearly is for the right of a woman to terminate a pregnancy uh, for the unborn. He's also for terminating the life of the born. And he says, if you want to be consistent about this, there's no real biological difference between somebody, you know, a baby in the womb, you know, five months, six months, seven months, and they, they survive outside of the womb fine. And if you've had a baby, there's not a huge change. You know, first few days after birth versus first few days before, they're, you know, all they could do is like poop, cry, and breathe. They don't learn new tricks, right, <laughs> right, right, right off the bat. Um, and he says it's actually arbitrary and inconsistent to, to, to draw the line at birth. And he said, yeah, I, this might be unpleasant to think about, but let's use consciousness as a test of per personhood. You know, those are just biological functions that are born. So infanticide to maybe age one or age two, that's a consistent position. What if these things that so obviously go together might not? Or another what if? If I think there's universal agreement that if the creation of human beings in Genesis 1 is the climax of God's creation, the crown, how much more is birth and motherhood? Guys can't do it. It's uniquely beautiful for women to be able to do. Is it so obvious to hold together this is one of the most awesome things that a human being can do. Be a mother and have a child. And then say, that's why we need to so vigilantly and vehemently maximize optionality that motherhood can be terminated. A final what if. What if, and this is true in an area like ours, adoption agencies and foster care systems don't go underwater. Adoption agencies and foster care systems, this isn't without exception, but they're declining because fewer and fewer babies are being brought to term. And waiting lists to be a foster parent, waiting lists to adopt are growing. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Yeah. The odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.